Kinetic Conversations is a creation of Wayne Shop Productions in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Welcome to Fort Wayne Ballet's Kinetic Conversations. Today we're speaking with Fort Wayne Ballet Artistic Director Karen Gibbons-Brown in a show we're calling Creating Classic Fairy Tales, Myth, and Ballet. So while the best-known ballet in America is arguably the Nutcracker, there are others that always pique familiar interest and sometimes share the light as a classic. Today we will talk about that in the context of Sleeping Beauty, and hopefully we'll learn something new and interesting in the process. So welcome back, Karen. Thank you so much for having me today. Let's paint the picture and start by talking about Sleeping Beauty. Will you talk a little bit about its creation in 1890? Sure. Marius Petipa, the Frenchman, who was the father of the Russian ballet, decided that this story would be a fabulous story. It's based on the Charles Perrault fairy tale, and Petipa felt that it would be a wonderful opportunity to show the ballet at its finest, but also there's that underlying story of the allegory about King Louis XIV and the ancients versus the moderns. So you can either watch it with all of that intent, or you can watch it for the story so that we what, know it what is. What is this underlying ancients versus the moderns? Well, back in the day, I wasn't there, back in the day, the country of France, which was Petipa's homeland, underwent a lot of challenges, as every country does. And there was a big push for things to move forward, and King Louis XIV, the Sun King, is seen as the one who pushed the country forward. So there is an allegory about Sleeping Beauty being the arising and awakening of the French country and culture. Or we can watch it for the pure fairy tale that so many people see it and love it as. The fairy tale, The Sleeping Beauty in the Wood, that Charles Perrault wrote, mm -hmm. how does that tie in with, or is that allegory part of yes. that story? Yes, it is. But again, Petipa was a master at taking a story, Nutcracker is another example, and shortening the libretto to be happy and gay, and they lived happily ever after. So that was exactly what he did with this ballet as well, with The Sleeping Beauty, although it is an awfully long ballet. It's generally shortened, and we have the important parts of the story. You have the princess who has the spell cast on her. You have the 16th birthday party where the spell happens. Then you have 100 years later, the prince comes along and awakens her with true love's kiss. And then you have the wedding where they, of course, in pure fairy tale form, live happily ever after. So many people are familiar with this story, and it may be part of why it's become such a classic, because Disney adopts <laughs> the story. Yes. And actually uses some of the same music, even he, though not in the same way. He does. For instance, the music where she is going up the stairs and finds a spindle and pricks her finger before the spell happens, it's actually the little white cat, Puss in Boots and the little white cat music. And in the ballet, that is a part of Aurora's wedding where everything is happy and light. And her fairy tale friends, since she's a fairy tale princess, come to celebrate her wedding with her. But the music has been so popularized, and there's actually a section we call the Garland Waltz, which has lyrics to it. Everybody knows it. I put it on for the first rehearsal. All of the dancers in the room started singing the song. No, 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 we don't sing in the ballet, but it's so popular now. 
One of the things that we just alluded to with this Charles Perrault tale are these fairy tale characters. Mm -hmm. And some of these are fairy tale characters from history. Some are French fairy tale characters. It's different, again, than the Disney version that many people may know. So how do those fit into this story and the ballet? Well, I'd like to back up, if I may, and talk about a couple of other differences as well, because it all leads to this ending of the ballet. In the Disney version, you have the three good fairies who hide Sleeping Beauty away until her 16th birthday party when she's delivered back to the kingdom and the castle to celebrate her 16th party. In the ballet, the prologue, or what we often know as Act One, but the prologue prior to her birthday, the six good fairies come to give their special gifts to the Princess Aurora. And they are the embodiment of all of the things that you want to be, you want your child to be, to have these characteristics. And they are tenderness, joy, beauty, song, wit. And then the lilac fairy is the fairy of love. The proceedings are interrupted by the evil fairy, Carabas, or in the Disney world, it's Maleficent. So Carabas is very upset that she wasn't invited to this party, this celebration, this royal celebration and cast the spell upon the baby Aurora. So that's another difference, but the characters will look familiar. They don't change her dress color like the fairies in the Disney version, but it still is very much the good versus the evil. When you get to the fairy tale characters in the wedding scene, they are her friends or the fairy tale creatures, as you mentioned, and they are from different countries. So you have Little Red Riding Hood and the Wolf, which is not a French fairy tale originally, you have the bluebird, or the bluebirds, the prince and princess, and that's a Russian fairy tale where the princess, Florimunda, has a spell cast upon her, and then the prince, Florimund, comes and saves her from the spell, and they fly away together. So you have a world, so to speak, a worldwide representation of the fairy tale characters that Petipa wove into his story of the Sleeping Beauty. He loved to travel to different countries, he loved to get dance moves and character moves from these other countries and really relished in their culture and tried to bring it back into the Russian ballet that he was so prominent in creating. So one of the other things about these Tchaikovsky ballets, the big three, the Swan Lake, the Sleeping Beauty, and the Nutcracker, when they premiere, they have different levels of success, but none of them are hugely successful out of the gate. Right. And over time, they've now become these sort of quintessential masterpieces that people are familiar with and are sort of building blocks that are as close as ballet has to Beethoven Ninth Symphony kind of relationship that orchestras have. So it's why true. has that evolved that way in the last hundred years? Well, I think to your point about them not being terribly successful on their premieres, I think that in part, Petipa felt obligated to do something new and creative in every production that he did, not just create the ballet, but present something that had never been seen on stage before. So for instance, in The Nutcracker, which we all know and love, he cast children in children's parts. And that was a first. Everybody said it would be a dismal failure. Well, over 100 years later, that wasn't quite right. It was not a dismal failure. His new thing in The Sleeping Beauty was in the scene where you have the courtyard and Aurora's 16th birthday party, there were actual working water fountains very lush, very opulent. It was a, a very full set. It was its own piece of art in itself. And that has become unwieldy for companies to present it that way. That was nixed pretty early on in mm -hmm. its career. But again, Petipa created something new every year. And there was a giant treasure trove of works that he created. So if you didn't really love it and right away, you had another one that you loved. 
It has a lot of staying power for a couple of reasons, far more staying power than another ballet, the Pharaoh's Daughter, for instance. Um, There are several. We could go down the list because it appeals to everybody, the young and the young at heart. It is good versus evil. True love wins. It's an escapism piece. And no matter what point in our world history we're in, we're always looking for something to escape into that is joyful and happy. And from the dance perspective, I feel why it's had such longevity is you can actually begin your career in Sleeping Beauty and end your career in Sleeping Beauty and do all of the parts in between. For instance, there are children in Sleeping Beauty, but not in prominent roles. They carry the queen's train. They are the pages to the queen and the king. So you start walking on and getting used to the stage. You move into the court of ballet pieces, the garland waltz, the nips in the vision scene, for instance. You graduate to a soloist, which may be a good fairy. I'm giving the female perspective here, obviously. And then you can move into the lilac fairy, which is the second ballerina of the company, and then Princess Aurora. So you groom your technique in all of these different parts of the ballet. So it's a benchmark ballet for dancers in that you can really gauge your technical and artistic progress through these parts. It is a very difficult ballet at every part of your career, and it is truly a stamina-building piece. It takes a couple of years to grow into some of these parts, and like I said, you can finish your career in a couple of these parts because it takes a bit of time to grow into them both artistically and technically. So taking a step back, too, about the creation of these three ballets, we're talking about Sleeping Beauty today, mm-hmm. but Marius Petipa and Tchaikovsky worked together in some fashion three times. Right. And I know we've talked earlier in some of these other podcasts about the way Petipa creates and, and the way Tchaikovsky, but having worked together three times, are there any things that you begin to see uh, through those ballets that grow in terms of maybe the partnership working differently or better? Because regardless of whether you work closely, if you work with somebody three times in some capacity, you get to know them as well, or you get to see something. Do you see any of that? I do, actually. Interesting question. Sleeping Beauty was the middle of that. Swan Lake came first, horrible failure, didn't relive again until in the 1800s. So it was from there, Sleeping Beauty, Swan Lake, and Nutcracker. And I think that you do see a lot of similarities in form, not necessarily in choreography, but in form. And I'm quite sure that Petipa had a handle on what he wanted to present technically and artistically prior to his conversations with Tchaikovsky. He very much directed a lot of the composition, which I can't imagine Tchaikovsky relished that at all times, not being a musician. I don't know that. I can't imagine he did. But there are thematic pieces that he has in all of his ballets. And Formula-wise, Petipa created the formula for what we know as the Grand Pas de Deux. So all of his ballets have a Grand Pas de Deux, usually the last one in the ballet, for the two leads, the male and the female lead. And it has the formula of the Entrada, the Adagio, his variation, her variation, and the Coda. So some of those formulaic pieces that he was creating in his tenure at the Russian ballet very much are prominent in all of his works. So you mentioned, too, that Petipa would bring different elements to each ballet, like the fountains that mm-hmm. were, were in this particular ballet when it was premiered. The other thing that, you know, as we're talking about these fairy tales and we're also talking about the grand production, we're, we're lucky to be doing this as a partnership with the Philharmonic. So we have the live orchestra. Yes. Um, and that so adds amazing. an element whenever you have live music for something like this for theater. 
But there are other elements too that somewhat are iconic, like when you think of Swan Lake and the castle that falls and some other elements. What grand elements do you normally associate with Sleeping Beauty, whether they're completely pulled off or not, but are the things that are special to the production side of this ballet? Well, I think the Good Fairies is something that's very special. And the creation of that particular part of the ballet in the prologue doesn't have the same kind of formula in any of his other ballets. So that is something rather special. I think also the 100 years later part of this presents a challenge, not just technically set-wise, but costuming-wise also. So I think that's something that's also different. And I think although there are pas de deux and duets and solos all throughout, there still is only one grand pas de deux in the ballet. And I think that it is the pinnacle of his choreography. It's purely classical. I'd also like to point out that if you were to see this ballet anywhere else in the world and you saw the Grand Padada or what we call the Rosa Daggio, it would be with very few elemental exceptions the same everywhere in the world which is a part of why it has that benchmark designation. Everybody does the same choreography for this, so how do you manage it? How do you stamina-wise, technically, artistically? What is the integrity of the movement? What is the integrity of your character at that particular point? I think that's a part of what makes Sleeping Beauty such an amazing piece. We don't have the liberties and the freedoms to change it like we do with Nutcracker, which takes on its own tenor, depending on your community and the choreographers, but Sleeping Beauty is what it is, and you'll see the same ballet, with few exceptions, anywhere in the world. So the other thing was to talk about the music and telling the story, the characters. One of the things that's interesting about this ballet is you have two themes. You have the good Mm -hmm. with a lilac fairy, and you have the evil with Carabas. It's called a leitmotif in music, and basically every time you hear it, you know the character. When you talk about ballets and uh, tools that tell the story, give some other examples of perhaps that tool and and used. I mean, I can't think of it in Nutcracker, but Swan Lake, is that employed? I know you have the classic theme when you hear the swans, but is that really used the same way? And if not, are there other examples of this leitmotif, good and evil, that's used? I think it's very prominent all throughout the ballet. But actually, in Nutcracker, there is, when you have the, the music, the celesta, with the Sugar Plum Fairy. That's sort of her theme every that's time true. you hear it. That's true, but you really, when you hear it, you hear most when she does the one variation as opposed to, but I can see your All point. All the way yeah, through. Yeah, I can see yeah. your point. I think in regards to the music, when the Lilac Fairy comes out, you have a theme. When Carabas comes out, you hear that. But I think the other piece that's interesting choreographically, Aurora embodies all of the pieces of the Good Fairies. So throughout the ballet, by the time, it's been an amazing rehearsal process because they've had to learn, the auroras have had to learn the fairy variations. And I'll go into the next rehearsal for them and they'll go, oh, that's this fairy. So the steps repeat, not necessarily the musical phrasing, Mm. but there is a gathering of all the steps representing the good or the goodness that the good fairies brought to Aurora and they're all put into her variations. It's really fascinating. Well, if that's the case, that, that, that when I talk back about Petapa and Tchaikovsky, obviously the music has those themes. If you're telling me the steps do, there's obviously a leitmotif in terms of the steps. So the conversation must have taken place at some level because you wouldn't be carrying those things through unless you were thinking about good and evil and ways to represent them. I suspect that's true. So talking and jumping a little bit ahead related to classic ballets or this idea about myths and fairy tales that have elevated themselves 
and maybe carry through in terms of what is now seen as classic ballet repertoire. I mean, we've done some of that this season where we've had some signature ballets like Giselle, which is one that in the ballet world people know and it becomes a classic. We do Nutcracker every year and it has its own situation. Within the story world that we're talking about in this type of ballet, Sleeping Beauty is one that you can take your children to and everybody knows it. And it's a wonderful story, whether you're an adult or a child. No surprises. No surprises. But when we talk a little bit about that fairy tale and the myth situation, what other ballets play into that role in terms of a maybe not as well-known a classic, but plays the same type of role in terms of the place it has in history. And when you see it come up in certain repertoire or certain seasons, you go, oh yeah, that's one that fits that mold. That's another great question. I think in regards to contemporary ballets, and I mean from the 1970s, I know that's a different century, but the 1970s to now, we don't really know what's going to be a classic. We don't really know what's going to have staying power. I think there are pieces that we've done here that will remain in play a hundred or more years from now, but we don't really know that. I think a couple of the other fairy tales that you might see are La Bayadere, and then there's one based on the Arabian Nights. Uh, there is Ramonda, and that's enjoying a resurgence as well. I think you also see Coppelia. Mm -hmm. That's another one, yet from a different time period in dance. But I think moving forward, I think you'll have some of those, as we get to the 20th century, I think something like Balanchine's Serenade will last for centuries because of its intent and the way it was worked. I think some of Mr. Arpino's pieces will do the same. I think the trick, and we have this conversation quite often in our dance history class, how do you continue to make these pieces look new and fresh without becoming a museum? And it's important that we do these pieces because they're great training ground for today's dancer. If you can do some of these ballets, Sleeping Beauty, Swan Lake, et cetera, you can do any of the contemporary things that come your way just because your body is trained and prepared to do so. But what from this more contemporary movement is going to move forward? I don't know. I'm curious. One other question, sort of along the lines of the continuum. When we talked about Giselle and when we've talked about other ballets, where they fall in history based on the technique, where things are within the field. So with Giselle and the long tutus and the various differences in terms of the classic elements of that period and what that says. And now you've got a ballet that's at a different period. And we've talked as well about what happens in the 20th century and then now the 21st century. What elements are unique to that evolution within the, the dancer, their technique, their abilities? And then, as you mentioned, it's a classic that is seen the same way all the time. And it is a watershed ballet. But what of those elements make it that as well as what are new that you wouldn't have seen back in Giselle? A couple of things. The costuming, the skirts on the women particularly getting shorter and the men's tunics getting shorter up closer to their waist as opposed to hanging down almost to their knees gives a greater sense of movement and freedom in the development of the technique. So today we call it the extreme movement, the legs super high, the multiple turns, but in the day, that wasn't necessarily the way it was. And interesting, you want to geek out here for a moment in ballet history. There was a notator for the royal court in Russia. His name was Stepanov. And although we have what we call Laba notation, which is very much a 20th century movement analysis, as is Banesh, we never really knew about these pieces that were recorded by Stepanov until about 20 years ago. 
And a choreographer did some research. He happened to be of Russian heritage and found the Stepanov notes, so has begun to restage some of these classics. So when you look at that restaging from the Stepanov notes of the Petipa classic, and you look at today how it's evolved through word of mouth and from dancer to dancer, it's very interesting. The costumes are a bit longer when it's presented. There's not as much point work for the women. The jumps aren't as high and the turns aren't as multiple, specifically for the men. But the concept and the basic format of the choreography has not changed so much. It's just the presentation. So while you may put your leg up in the air behind you, and we call that an arabesque, it would have been lower in those days, but today we want it up to the shoulder. So some of that has evolved, but as far as the basic concept, it's pretty much the same ballet. And when you see it, it's amazing how, how well we've done handing these things down from generation to generation, yet how wonderful it is that we have something to look back on and see what was more true you know, things evolve. Oh, when I did this part, I did it this way. Mm-hmm. And that's happened from generation to generation. But to go back to those original notes has been interesting to see. Hmm. Well, it's always nice to see a classic come to life. And as we've talked about today, I think uh, being able to share that from multiple generations uh, and experience that in a consistent way is part of what makes fairy tales so much fun. And I think probably what makes uh, The Sleeping Beauty one of those beloved things to share and to see. So It has something for everyone. Exactly. So with that, Karen, thank you for being here today. Thank you. The Sleeping Beauty performances are April 22nd through 24th at the Arch United Center, along with the Fort Wayne Philharmonic and its partnership with the Fort Wayne Ballet. You can purchase tickets by visiting the Fort Wayne Ballet website, the Philharmonic website, or calling the box office at 422-4226. Kinetic Conversations is brought to you by Fort Wayne Ballet and Wayne Shout Productions. Our guest was Fort Wayne Ballet Artistic Director Karen Gibbons-Brown. Our producers are John Dawkins and Jim Sparrow. We'd also like to thank John for his original music, which starts and ends the show. And if you'd like to receive notifications on future podcasts, please like the podcast and go to fortwayneballet.org to sign up for notifications on performances, podcasts, and more ballet news. You'll also find a library of past episodes on our website and the menu of options. Until next time, I'm Jim Sparrow, and thanks for listening to Connect Conversations with Fort Wayne Ballet. has been a Wayne Shout production. Wayne Shout.